You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of splatterpictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1981 undisputed classic, The Howling. So I did the yowl because they have a very stock cartoonish yowl in the opening credits, and it felt appropriate this time. It is appropriate this time. And I mean, we were talking, Chris and I, about what other werewolf films we've done on the show and there are, you know, it's tough. There are some really good werewolf movies out there. And mm-hmm. we've just covered Dog Soldiers, arguably one of the best. Howling. The Howling is the best werewolf movie out there. You know, we can't talk about the sequels the same with the same sort of fervor, the same sort <laughs> of majesty. It doesn't hold any of that. And not many werewolf films come close. American Werewolf in London is close but it's like it's 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 a horror comedy uh, sort of a drama as well so like it just kind of covers way too many genres as far as werewolf horror films is this or is this not the undisputed king of werewolf horror films Wes you're you're asking a person that grew up on Turner Classics so if it's anything that is the undisputed masterpiece It is, of course, Universal's Wolfman starring Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, But... Ah, damn it. (laughs) Oh, man, you know I gotta get the moldy oldies out. Uh, But you're right. I think that, first of all, 1981 is a bumper year for werewolf films because you have the Beatles and the Stones of werewolf films. It's the Adams Family and the Munsters. It's fucking Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. It's who do you like? It's fucking Picard and Kirk, man. It's something that people will debate. 1981. Of course, 1981 also has Wolfen. Not really a werewolf film, but it's in the circle of that. And um, is a very good film. Check that out. I know I've mentioned it before. But... For me, and I know for you, I'm a howling guy. I've always been a howling guy, and it comes down to one simple thing. And I hate to be reductive like this. I truly hate to be reductive like this. It's just a fucking more fun movie. It moves quicker. I like the look of the werewolf. The the the, the transformation sequence in American Werewolf in London is one of the most jaw-dropping practical effect sequences in all of horror, and it's famous for a reason. But I don't really like the final result. I don't ever really like the way that the wolf looks in that film. I never have. I always think it looks awkward. It's way too much of an animatronic thingamabob. It just looks like a puppet, and that's fine. It doesn't have to look like anything other than a puppet. 
But for me... Yeah, it was the journey, not the destination when it comes to that transformation. I, I agree. I just think that there's a, there's a little bit of a Jaws factor in American Werewolf in London where, you know, the second they start showing that fucking shark too much, it all falls apart because it looks like dog shit. So, like, I, I just I just think that... Sorry for Jaws fans out there. I hate for you to find out this way. The Howling is just a more fun movie. And I felt that because I really wanted to nail it down, Lids. I didn't want to just say, well, I like this better because it's a better movie. I don't think it's a better movie in because what the fuck does that even mean? It just like it's it's just far easier to watch for me. I find like you had pointed out a minute or so ago, um, you know, American Werewolf in London has a lot of very long dramatic scenes and even though there th those are wonderful scenes and it's a wonderful movie i just would i would rather watch the howling almost any day of the week um but we don't need to 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 denigrate a classic film that a lot of people love to elevate the howling lids we don't need to do that at all the howling can stand on its own uh on two legs with big pointy ears <laughs> all the better to hear you with my Wes. <laughs> but I think that one of the things that drive this film home for me and have year after year, we just watch the Scream Factory 4K version. And every time there's a new version, it's it's better and better and better. And I always see little things throughout this because the thing that makes this film so special to me, aside from the amazing look of the wolves, aside from the, the sex and violence mesh that you have going on in here, which gets a lot of horror fans... Uh, typically, I'm not big on the sex thing, but in this film, it works if it's also the comedy aspect of it at times. But it's the fan service. Sure, there's lots of it in other werewolf movies, but this one, just everywhere you turn, there is a werewolf reference, a wolf reference, a full moon reference, a howling reference. Like, there is something in every damn corner you look. And I'm still finding stuff I'd never noticed before, like the Thomas Wolfe book on the... I had noticed the Allen Ginsberg Howell book, but I hadn't noticed the Thomas Wolfe book. And like little stuff like that. The fan service in this movie is rampant. So for werewolf fans and fans of, of horror and fans of seeing behind the curtain, so to speak, from time to time, and monster kids, I think that this just pulls all those levers and hits all those buttons. Not only that, but you have what comes to be some of the most famous horror royalty all in one place at one time. Rod Botin, Joe Dante, D. Wallace, fucking Dick Miller has a great couple of scenes in this film. So it is a, a, a smorgasbord of all of these classic 80 character actors and practical effects wizards and directors that are notable for a reason and so i'm very pumped up and excited to talk about the howling um fuck though my enthusiasm what is this movie even about anyways lids i want to know once and for all this is about going into places where you're not invited like so much horror is but in this case 
there is a push and pull going on behind the scenes behind the place you're not supposed to go. They're having their own little civil war between themselves about modernization and the old ways. So you've not only walked into somewhere you don't belong, you've walked in over a landmine. Yes. Abs- it's also about media. <laughs> it is about media. This opening sequence is in a way baffling because they are asking us to catch up to things that have already occurred in the movie. This movie doesn't even wait for you to watch it, Lids. It is yeah, yeah. giving you a lot of information very quickly. It reminds me a lot of the opening of Dawn of the Dead in which you have a talking heads and you have a lot of action and you have a newsroom. Uh, I love to, you know me, I love to look at these late 70s, early 80s media centers, just big blinking lights and flicky switches and dudes hunched over with cigarettes and coffee watching a bank of monitors. It's absolutely fantastic. I used to play with all that old equipment when I was in broadcasting because you know these stations they don't get rid of anything. So all of that stuff is just sitting in a corner just in case. And this was always imparted to me. Wes, what do we do when the systems fail and the only thing left is good old fashioned durable analog? We're gonna know we're gonna need to know that we have all this stuff at the ready. So consequently, <laughs> you're always tripping over these yellowed 400 pound behemoths of equipment that have just been around for decades. Yeah, an old Marantz system. Like, the question that I always had was, well, what do you do when you run out of batteries? Notepads, Wes. Notepads. That is what you do. (laughs) Be reduced to notepads and stubby pencils. Blackened (laughs) sticks from the wood fire that we're keeping ourselves warm with. But, yeah... And this is a good example, I think, of that sort of era of journalism that grew out of the wartime journalism because a lot of these guys came back from the war and not only war journalism and reporting and photojournalism, they came back to newsrooms with that same sort of drive and that same sort of organization. So when you see them roving around the team, roving around the city at night in teams to get this story, that actually was going down that sort of investigative journalism is not going on right now we have too many keyboard warriors to misuse a coined term but there's not enough actual investigative journalism like that and when it does happen people are blown away by that sort of reporting if there was more of it there would be more celebrated journalists in my opinion but this sort of stuff going on at the streets at night chasing a killer being wired for sound like it's not that far-fetched it could really happen watching it now if i were of a younger generation i'd probably be like oh yeah you lost me i'm not you know i can't believe this but that's really what it was like kids that's really what it was like i'm only a, a wee bit younger than you are lids and even i find this investigative journalism hard to swallow because there's this entire aspect where this radio station is hunting this stalker slash serial killer who has taken a liking to D. Wallace's character um, 
you know, Dee Wallace, we've done some of her movies before. We've done Cujo and uh, The Hills Have Eyes. And so there's lots of great stuff that she's been. Critters, I'm a big Critters fan, so love that she's in that. But um, she is Karen White, and she's got a stalker who's a serial killer, and she is going to go... And, like, she's a detective. And even uh, What's-Her-Face's Terry and Chris later on in the film, I'm like who are these people like i better get a rifle and some fucking bullets like what the hell what is this and so i always take it as a movie thing that isn't real because my perception i've worked in newsrooms before in in radio stations and it and you just sit there and you get information and you might have contacts it's a lot of phone calls it's a lot of phone calls it's a lot of but it's none none of this stuff. You would say, well, leave that kind of stuff to the police. Um, but in films, constantly they still, like you know, in The Ring, they still use these old school ideas that what a journalist does is essentially operate as if they're a fucking detective. It's wild to think of it. It's it's as out of time as when I see hitchhiking in movies. It would. It, yeah. it, it just seems like such a bygone era. I think the one line that works for me so well in this intro, when we're getting used to the fact that these TV news people are investigating a murder <laughs> um, and, and going into the killer's apartment and taking evidence and stuff like that, um, it would be, you know, more believable for these newspaper guys because we're used to newspaper guys breaking all the rules. And the mortician even says it's usually the newspaper guys that are in here trying to get a look at the meat, so to speak, trying to look at Eddie Quest's dead body, which has been, spoiler alert, taken or is disappeared from the morgue. So, yeah, like it, he fixes it for me in the context of my believability of where I could believe a newspaper guy is typically in there doing this. I do believe that these TV folk would be chasing down the lead the way that they are. Not nowadays, however, because of course commentators are talking heads and anyone can be a commentator on their YouTube show and anyone can be a true crime analyst on TikTok. Um, but at the time, fully believable fully believable eddie quist is possibly my favorite character in this entire film he gets a great introduction uh going to a porno theater that just occurred to me the first for the first time watching it today um is that a porno or did he make that movie himself it's not clear to me oh wow i never really thought about it because you know some more rough uh, stag films and it is touted as a gangbang film. I believe it says on the wall inside. Oh. So I don't know if it was, but it certainly seems to be more in line with a rape scenario than a gangbang scenario. But I don't know what the uh, a common kind of stag films were being shown in LA or even New York uh, penny theaters at the time. I guess it's not entirely relevant, but the, he threw out some dialogue that I caught this time. Speaking of things where you catch something new every time, where I wasn't entirely, I was like, is he implying that he made this movie? Because he's like, I want you to watch. And and he makes, so at the very least, he makes 
movies like this, I think. But I don't know if what she was, if he had like put it in, like, like you, he he put in his own whatever the fuck VHS or sixteen millimeter version of his own movie, and and so the movie that she went in there, the gangbang scene, is not what she was watching. She was watching something that he had made perhaps but that, that I was just I wanted you to know your take on that because just for some reason it struck me but I tell you what's gonna struck old Eddie his bullets oh yeah oh yeah right in the forehead at that too through a door I mean that cop might have been a little bit gung-ho I guess uh, him quick draw McGraw. quick of the trigger quick <laughs> quick draw McGraw thank you that's the line yeah but he uh did the job too sweet I mean, yeah, and I'm going to look at that uh, film that he's forcing Karen to watch and see if I recognize him or TC or any of the other people from the colony. But that's skipping ahead a whole bunch. Karen is shaken, absolutely shaken. She doesn't remember anything. So now we get to be treated to her nightmares showing us snippets of this over and over. And sort of, they do a good job, I think, in that somebody who's had a traumatic experience that doesn't remember everything it come back comes back like in bits and pieces and can be sort of false memories because she starts like envisioning other people being in these different positions she envisions herself being tied to this bed or gagged and she envisions other people being the perpetrators of this heinous crime this rape this uh, gangbang or whatever it's supposed to be so it does such a really good job of that, but it also seems almost unbelievable that she wouldn't remember it because she yes, it was traumatic, but she seemed very with it throughout the whole thing. So it is just a traumatic experience, and I really like that her husband is there. And it's also at this time of 1981 where we have some films that are really pushing feminist ideas to the forefront. And I love how everyone comments on their last names not being the same all of the time. So any way to diffuse a traumatic situation, but to note that the husband's last name is not the same as his wife's. Isn't that wonderful stuff, Wes? I couldn't help but notice that when Karen is traumatized by this experience that her station coaxed her into, that when she is at the the news table and being broadcast she freezes because she's having uh, an episode a PTSD episode and her station manager is like get her out get her out of there get her off the air cut to cut to this cut to that and then he he looks at his uh, a monitor of a of a, the male newscaster doing his thing and he's like that's a pro and I'm like, well, that guy who you just called a pro didn't go to a sleazy porno theater and was almost killed by a serial killer that you made her go and talk to and then who she saw murdered in front of her. His other point during that scene is, oh, she must be pregnant or something. <laughs> like, wow. Wow. Dude. But I'm glad that those lines are in there because it just shows how pull-headed that sort of old guard of journalism really was. They weren't out and out saying in a Ron Burgundy anchorman sort of way that it's anchorman, not anchor lady. You know, they're not going that, but it's that sort of um, microaggression 
sort of thing that was born in that state, right? So I, I really do like that they're including a lot of what it was really like. Young female investigative journalist pushing up against the old guard. And I think they capture it really well. And talk about a traumatic experience. Holy shit. The fact that she was expected to be behind the desk is crazy. But she did also have a say in this, right? She must have had a say in this. She wanted to be there. She said she was okay. She didn't know she wasn't. It was that era of um, exploitative, get the dirt, show the crime scene, uh, you know, up to the minute and all in the name of giving people the news and as it happened in real time. And she was probably in that mindset of like, well, this is a fucking scoop. Uh, we're gonna get we're gonna get this killer because he has taken a fancy to me, and you know she was probably given all kinds of assurances. That whole phone booth th scene, right? But you could tell almost immediately that all of their plans. Again, none of these people they're trying to uh, do a sting, essentially, and none of these people are fucking law enforcement. They're they're just trying to get this story down, and we're spending a lot of time, gang, on this. Uh, idea because this it, first of all it's a fairly good op beginning chunk of the film you know like 15-ish minutes or something like that but also it the whole film is predicated on this idea that in order to um, recover from her experiences so she can get back to work and start doing the journalism thing surrounded by a bunch of people who are not sensitive to her situation because they've probably been in radio since the late 40s some of them um yeah yeah um she's got to uh, talk to her doctor and they're gonna go away to a hippie love camp a colony this is one of the most buck wild recommendations like it, more so than than anything that i could picture the idea of of especially when once her and her husband bill mr roll over and fall asleep bill under any situation you just name it he is going to roll over and go to sleep um <laughs> they go to this weird hippie commune it is a weird hippie commune and at the time it might not have struck such a chord with us as a weird hippie commune but it was and it was nothing different from the people living upstairs in rosemary's baby right there they're definitely some sort of there's a big cult vibe whether you get what's going on that you get near the halfway point of the story and onward. But there is like, it is a weird hippie commune. I mean, it's right out of the endless. It's very, they're strange people. And the doctor is like one of the ringleaders of this. He had been invited to the station to talk about the monster in man when they were going to be having this expose on Eddie Quist, this mangler serial killer that they'd caught <laughs> alive on television or whatever. So that's how he had become part of this small family of these newscasters. And these newscasters tend to know this guy. He'd probably been um, one of their expert, you know, go-to commentators in the past. So they know him. He has a couple books out about, I don't know, the man and beast, beast and man kind of thing. But yeah, it is a, a weird little place just up in the hills of Los Angeles 
not far from the places where the Manson family had prowled and not far from the mansions where they had prayed as well. So it's really striking a lot of 1981 chords really deeply within that age group that would have been watching this at the time. So, or starring in it, of course. I'm sure that a lot of these people, this really must have struck a chord when they read these scripts. But anyhow, the colony is populated by such a mix mash, like so many communes were at the time, of these old people who just want to jump in the fire and end it all, and sex pots like Marsha. They call her a nymphomaniac. They're not even subtle about it. <laughs> yep. The, the whole idea of the doctor having this alternative medicine, which this was the era of that. This was the, the, the era of, well, traditional ideas of therapy don't work. So here is a, is a new environment uh, amongst other people, and they're all getting the help that they need for various reasons. Although um, an old man who's threatening to kill himself the doctor's response is, ah, you know, just go to sleep, take a nap, go to sleep, uh, you know, in the light of the day, everything will be fine. I'm like, wow, wow. I can see how you wrote so many books. Um, probably a lot of pictures <laughs> in them. <laughs> but, um, and a lot of people would just sort of be dismissive of, uh, oh, he's doing it for attention. But that's the times. This environment that Bill is brought to doesn't seem great for him because uh, he he falls for Marsha like fucking immediately. Well, I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, take a look at her, Wes. Listen, look at that leather titty holster that she's got. It's barely a shirt. It's a titty holster. It's a titty frame is what it is. And she's got this sexy fur headband. I mean... She looks like she'd be a bad guy from, like, fucking Beastmaster or, like, fucking Sheena, Queen of the Jungle or something like that. Yeah, and that would have been what was hot at the time. You know, people were still really big on the Conan kind of thing, and the gore novels were, like, that kind of um, subversive underground um, guilty pleasure. So I could see her really fulfilling a lot of those fantasies. I mean, I can see, though, how this writes itself, having those sorts of characters colliding at a commune type of place. Uh, I used to own the novel of this and the novelization, two different books, Gary Bradner's original novel, The Howling, and the novelization of the film, The Howling, two very different books. But I can see entirely how this writes itself when you take what we know of like werewolves and how we could guess that they would have lived in a commune or wolf pack type way via V the, the, at the time, moderate hippie commune goal of like being able to live outside commune with nature, meditate and bang and eat fucking vegetarian food or whatever. And there is even uh, traces of that. Although it seems there's a lot of meat eating going on in this commune which is the one big difference between typical hippie communes, but it just totally writes itself. Throw a nympho in there with the free love that we're just sliding out of in 1981. So, so on point, so perfect. And then the thrill of a serial killer, my gosh, because they're not totally done with Eddie Quist. His relatives live at this commune. They do. And we're getting a bit of a B story 
with characters who work for the station. They're investigative journalists, Chris and uh, uh, Terry. And they are going through Eddie Quist's things. He's quite the artist. He likes to sketch werewolves. He likes to draw landscapes that a werewolf might enjoy being at. Um, it's a lot of werewolf or a hippie, stuff. Or a hippie. Or a hippie. Or perhaps a hippie werewolf. But <laughs> but um, it, it's nice to see uh, someone have hobbies other than killing, as uh, people I'm sure would, would have in that situation. And they talk to the coroner. They visit the apartments. They start going to a, a, a We Buy Bookstore. It's a used bookstore slash... Uh, it's got a lot of bric-a-brac. It's got a lot of novelties and, and shit like that. Old Dick Miller is there. Uh, again, as always, completely owning the scene. As you forget any other character is there. The way that that guy absolutely commands the screen when he's there as a fucking character actor. It's, it's remarkable how memorable of a guy that was. And it's remarkable how consistently whether you're watching the the burbs or chopping mall or uh gremlins he's always going to be this person we're like wow there's that dick miller scene you might not know his name but you definitely are going to remember the scenes that he's in uh just fast talking seems to talk a little louder than everybody else it's uh it's probably a technique to make sure that you remember him uh absolutely wonderful and this this balance of this film it becomes a a serial killer detective story all the while it's a cult movie which includes werewolves the only thing that i could say that hits me the wrong way watching this now not back then but watching it now is Karen is such a reactionary character to the and I mean she drifts through these scenes that and situations that people put her in constantly it's a little bit like Rosemary's Baby in that you have someone who is trying to listen to traditional sources of authority who are trying to be a good reporter slash journalist or, or however you want to look at it you she's trying to be a good wife she's trying to listen to get help to make herself better to get over this trauma and she just keeps getting led from situation to situation uh very much surrounded by very dismissive uh people uh including her husband who you know mother of god he starts coming apart there's this scene where marcia hits on him or at least makes her interest known and it's it's the classic i have a wife which is which is not really a, a hard a no as i think a lot of people who are married would want but yeah. um um in the, the, on their second meeting the, he, he does this thing where he brings her a rabbit for her to cook and her weird brother who wears fucking furs like he's in He-Man um, sends him to go like, uh, she's going to cook the rabbit for you. It's going to be good. I'll cook the rabbit later. And she kisses him and he does that thing where he 100% kisses her back. 
and then kisses her for a little bit and then stands up and pushes her away. And I was like, bro, that is such a move that you can, you still got to kiss the pretty beast master villainess, but you, you, mm-hmm. you also get to be full of righteous indignation because after a little bit, you came to your senses. Uh, kind of loopholy, kind of shitty, uh, but he's got the taste in him now. Lids. Oh, it's going to get sensual. It's basically bloodlust. The idea of people dismissing Karen continuously is so embodied so well in one line from Marsha, who is her foil, who is her antithesis, who is the exact opposite of Karen. When Barney Rubble's looking for his wife at the little party and he says, I'm looking for my wife. And Marsha says, why? And it's fucking brilliant. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you right now. If I was talking to a woman at a party and and I said I was looking for Cassandra and she said why, I'd be like, I am no longer engaged in this conversation because there is another person here that will claw your face off and mine. So bye. Bye forever. I'm <laughs> not talking to you anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a million reasons why I'd be looking for my husband at a party, you fool. What what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? What do you mean why? Get out of my face. That would be like like it's I, just the natural response to I, that question. We know Barney Rubble's down for something because he doesn't respond like that from the get-go. Uh, but, you know, it's 1981, man. You got to relax. You got to like just go with the flow, man. I love how this movie is a commentary on that sort of free love, coming out of the free love and into the modern era. (laughs) Uh, Coming out of that sort of regression into caveman style thinking that we were going back. Like, And there's no mention of cocaine or weed in this movie too, I might add. It's not like we're going from free love era into the me generation of coke-fueled fucking uh, American psycho land. It's just adult life for crying out loud is what it seems to me anyway so bill is being or barney rubble as i had referred to him is being dismissive and he's an inch away from banging this other girl i don't think that karen doesn't notice what's going on she even has this moment that i suppose she uh chops up to a a woman's intuition it's just a feeling that she has that he is being led astray i i i find the marcia character interesting when i was a kid i found her absolutely captivating what a beautiful stunning woman <laughs> but i um i uh, now as as an adult i i i find myself wondering that that like it's there's context to why she's so sexed up She's a nymphomaniac, Liz. So it makes complete contextual sense that she would behave this way. But I'm wondering what that is in the service to, aside from just making a sexy werewolf scene, which we do get. That goes on for a while. Um, It's not quite as egregious and long as the fucking sex scene in Wolf Cop that seems to have no end. But um, 
There's a fucking movie I didn't think you would mention today. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I forgot about Wolf Cop and I love it. <laughs> um but uh there there is this uh this passionate love making lids at a fire. All the while, now it's D Wallace's turn to roll over angry and go to sleep because they're not having sex. It's a big moment of contention for this relationship. It, it will come to a head later, but um, uh, Karen is on the, on the one hand, I don't see how Karen as a character is really getting any help here. And my question to you, Lids, is do you think that, do you think that the doctor just brought her here to turn her into a werewolf? Like, this will help. What if you're a werewolf? You'll feel a lot better. Or d- d- was there some kind of plan that maybe she wasn't going to be a werewolf? There's clearly a divide with how this pack of culty werewolves operates. I don't mean to get into spoilers. This film's pretty old, gang. But um, the but did he? do you think that he thought that she was going to go to this colony, get better and leave and not become a werewolf. I think, and I'm stretching here. Two things were going on. Eddie Quist wanted a mate. And I think that he had chosen Karen and the the pack was trying to facilitate this decision. I think I'm not sure. He's also a serial killer that was gone kind of lone wolf away from the pack into the city. So I, I don't know, but the doctor also made mention later on about wanting to modernize and blend in. We have to learn to live with them. People aren't our food. We can eat cattle, blah, blah, blah. Like all these ideas, these newfangled fucking new agey ideas about how to make werewolves be able to blend into the modern world. And I think that he wanted her as like a hybrid spokesperson for the werewolf pack. I think that's really what his goal was. Because uh, I, 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 it doesn't seem to me that people can come here in tourist mode and go hang out in the colony and not become a werewolf. The interesting thing about how these werewolves operate lids that I don't know if it's wholly unique to this film. I think there might be other films, maybe even like the Underworld series um, gave this to certain werewolves at a certain <laughs> age or certain power level or whatever the hell that movie franchise was doing. But in this world, Lids, they don't need a full moon. They can turn into a werewolf at any time for any reason, like flexing a muscle, which is a really cool concept. And I love, I, I love werewolves that can transform any time. Uh, it takes them a century to transform. <laughs> That's a long ass time. And uh, there will definitely be a werewolf that pays for his really long transformation later on in the film. But when Bill gets turned into a werewolf um, and leaves into the night to hook up officially with Marsha, he's essentially gone and out of the story for a huge t- chunk of time. He he pops in once or twice. But do you know who makes it to the island? It's good old Terry. It's her friend from the station. And I really like that in that you're pointing out that she has really gotten no help. She's having night terrors, day terrors. She's having hallucinations. She's having all sorts of suspicious thoughts. She has 
a, a really hard time reconnecting with her husband because any sexual contact brings back memories broken memories at that of the night Eddie Quest got shot in the porn theater so like a lot of she has a lot of trauma that she's trying to work through in a group therapy session full of fucking weird people she doesn't know and nymphos okay that's not helpful they take her husband away hunting he gets attacked by a wolf okay none of that's fucking helping is certainly not helping so she does invite her friend terry which is like the only helpful thing i think the most healing moment for her in this whole movie is her walking on the beach with her friend terry once terry shows up because terry's husband who's also in news they all work at the same goddamn station which is something i don't know like that's where my believability kind of falls apart because i don't think everyone that works at the whole station could all be married and banging but okay (laughs) um Maybe that's the holdover from the 70s. That's the only healthy decision. But yeah, they're walking on this beach, which to our trained eyes bears a striking resemblance to some of the artwork that they had found in Eddie's apartment. But it is like the only like two women talking it out. Wholesome moment. The only helpful thing is Terry's arrival. It also helps us ratchet up the tension because now we have more bonus bodies (laughs) from a horror movie perspective. But yeah, it's it's great that Terry has showed up with her own husband not far behind. This is also moments before she discovers fresh scratches on the back of Barney Rubble or Bill because he has had this tryst with Marsha, which ends with like some of the weirdest like animation and almost like, is it claymation? Do they claymate the werewolves for a moment at the end of it? They do. There's two. I'm glad you brought that up. Truly, because there's two weird animation moments in this film. One looks like rotoscoping to me. The first one at the fire looks like rotoscoping. But the last shot with with three werewolves in it, it very much looks like claymation. Or it might be, I, I can't remember the name of the technique, but it's the same it's the same technique that they used in um, Alien 3 where they're, where it is a practical thing, but they're shooting it against some kind of back screen so it looks like it's stop animation, but it's not. Um, I, I can't remember what you call that type of stuff, but the first thing is definitely rotoscoping. They're just animating over top of it. And that it, it's, it's, it's a beautifully done scene. It just looks very dated now. And, it, and I don't even know if it's one of those situations where it would have looked dated at the time I wasn't alive in 1981. But but um, I, I do know that sometimes when you see modern films that use early CGI and, and people say, oh, well, at the time we thought that was amazing. You know, when they're talking about the Mummy and shit remakes and and I remember at the time seeing that in theaters and thinking, wow, this looks like dog shit. Even then, it looked like dog shit to me. So I don't, I don't know really how it looked at the time, but I will say that it kind of jumps out at you, particularly since there's going to be moments, uh, bef- or after this, where you're going to get a lot of werewolf action, and it's all practical. I think that having seen this probably five years after it was made. Um... I do recall being struck by the scene, not only because it was like a super horny 
porn scene for for a kid, the ten year old kid mm. watching a horror f- film. Like it was a pretty sexy scene, it so is, it stuck yeah, out. Sexy. But that it finishes on that little hint of like animation, that's just it was just accepted for the time. I rewatching the entity after many 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 years passed, it struck me on how awkward the animated like electrical stuff looked when they're capturing ghosts at the end when i first saw that film i thought it was like state of the art really believable and high tech special effects i didn't think that watching the howling when i was about 10 years old so for context when this movie came out i was five right so five years later after it came out and i had seen lots of other horror movies and i had seen american werewolf in london and like i'd seen some pretty cool effects and transformations but i'd also seen a lot of like kids shows that use heavily heavily used rotoscoping so i was very familiar with it <laughs> and i think it just sort of blended in at the time where it stands out now because we don't see very much of it at all thank you for coming to my ted talk about rotoscoping in horror film of 1981 hey it's useful information lids um one thing leads to another and terry finds herself quite quickly at the ire of this pack i think that it has a little something to do with she's snooping around she's she's getting in there um also she is supportive of karen in a way that i guess Again, it's so unclear to me whether or not this colony wants her part of the fold or if they don't. Um, At the very least, they can't seem to agree. But Terry is attacked. And you would think that it's the same werewolf both times, but it's fucking not. And we get a great uh, hand-chopping scene. We learn, by the way, through Dick Miller uh, commentary that... These werewolves, you have two options. You have fire and you have silver bullets, uh, which he so happens to have because someone wanted some and and didn't end up using them. So he still has them kicking around. But um, so he says he specifically says something. You could shoot them, chop chop their limbs off. It's not going to do anything. A couple of days later, they may look dead, but they're not actually dead. So these werewolves are capable of regeneration, although it's quite slow as almost as slow as their transformation because once she gets away from this one werewolf that we think might be Eddie Quist, she actually does encounter Eddie Quist and he begins to, he seems very into showing people his werewolf transformation. And it seems so appropriate that while he's doing this transformation scene, which is very cool, it's, Uh, By its own right. Obviously, it's not as iconic as American Werewolf in London, but I think so many other things about the howling, as we've already talked about, just do it for me a little bit more. But this is the moment in which it's hard to compare it because the other sequence is just so famous and so iconic. This sequence happens and happens and happens and happens. So uh, Karen is the one that throws the acid into Eddie Quinn's face to damage him and give him that really cool skull-like look to his face. They're in a, um, a, a doctor's office, a hospital, sciencey area, and so she's got acid. And the second this motherfucker um, uh, transforms, she pitches a whole ass thing of acid in his face. 
Which is so fitting because it is sort of like the old meeting the modern. <laughs> He's going to tear apart limb from limb, but no, she's going to spray him with a chemical. And that'll be the end of, well, it's not the end of any quest, but it'll be the end of that moment. At least she's out of trouble for the time being. And she's had an opportunity to capture a lot of this on tape. And she's mm -hmm. had the opportunity to call her boyfriend, husband, person, who has run to the other side bookstore, which was an actual functioning bookstore, by the way. You could have gone there and seen maybe not silver bullets and skulls and stuff and books about werewolves and demons, but this gorgeous old bookstore with a ladder and all that, like the scrolling ladder yeah, the and an upstairs portion. It's a gift shop now, from what I understand, but... It was, the other side bookstore was an actual bookstore. It had a different name, if I recall correctly. But nevertheless, her husband has run there and bought these silver bullets for whatever they're worth and is speeding his way out there as we speak. The transformation, we get blessed with a couple of them in this. And not only, of course, the end transformation, which all comes off completely differently. They all have their differences and different speeds and different looks to werewolves. Mm -hmm. And Chris and I were talking last night, like why they felt the need to make all the werewolves look so vastly different and why Dee Wallace looks so very different from, say, Eddie Quest with his gigantic ears. And I keep trying to reconcile the big ears with myself because he needs the big eyes to see you with, the big teeth to eat you with, I suppose, and the big ears to hear you with. And I think that they're really drawing on that for this look, which seems childish, but it's the only way I can reconcile the giant fucking size of these ears. And we get to see them grow and everything, so they really stick out in my mind. What is your favorite part of the transformation? Is it like the hands, the feet, the shirt busting, the hair stuck in his mouth? It's unequivocally. I Even before you even asked me, I, I had the scene locked in my head. It's the hand. I love that hand out to the camera, while the claws, you know, six inches grow out of the fingers, I think it's really incredibly done. It's menacing. Um, Eddie Quist is a character. In this scene, he's good. In the next scene, where we see him in a human form with his skull-like melted face, is is inspired. It, 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 is, it is an inspired bit of acting. On his part, he is menacing and horrific, yet suave in a weird way and intelligent. And it's a little baffling when you when he tosses Chris the rifle, but he probably doesn't. I mean, none of them realize that there's silver bullets in the gun. So it, it was probably to, to sh a display of power, a display of there's nothing you can do to me. I'm going to give you the gun that you think can protect you and it can't. But fuck me. I didn't realize that there was silver bullets like Chris came prepared. So there's there. I, I just really enjoy this. Meanwhile, Karen has realized what we've been dancing around for a little while. But it's uh, or, or flat out saying this entire place is lousy with fucking werewolf slits. Oh, my God. Everybody, everybody, except, of course, downtown, 
the bookstore owner, not a werewolf. But pretty much everyone else that you've met is a werewolf. And even the people who seem to be newbies, there's this couple that is like a husband-wife couple who they sort of pal around with that very first night around the campfire. And it's like even them. And it, I don't know why it strikes me as like, oh my God, even the newbies are werewolves. So that's why they're there, of course. That's why everybody's here. Because it is yeah, a werewolf the- pack. The, the sheriff is a werewolf, although there's a, I'll get, there's a there's a scene that made me laugh later just because it's so outlandishly ridiculous. But this is where we get this, like, island of Dr. Moreau type. Everyone's a fucking animal, and we're going to hear this doctor's philosophy. And we've heard this philosophy before in modern day-ish vampire films, um, some uh, like the Hellboy film franchise deals with this a lot anytime that you have these old supernatural beings ideas whatever have you and you, and it's like what if they weren't all myth what if they wanted us to believe that they were myths so they could live amongst us in secret 30 days of night does stuff like this um this idea of wanting to be able to exist because humans have become i don't know so populous and uh, it would be bad for them because they could be hunted on the to the brink of extinction or extinction if humans were aware that they were around for real. So by staying in secret, they can kind of remain an apex predator. Uh, this this scene comes off as very strange to me, and it doesn't quite work because of the immediacy in which you see dissent within the ranks. You have the doctor here explaining what his philosophy is and why they're doing this and why they are where they are. And you have a, uh, her friends that sounds like they're just like, oh, he had my friends from Des Moines or something. But they they are in turn, oh, it's, you know, I, at first I, I, I fought against it, but, you know, now I feel really good. And so you get the sense, oh, I, I guess everyone is on the same page. Not so, because Marsha is there and she and her brother and they have this entire sect of people that old guy that wanted to pitch his own ass in the fucking fire um they have this old school more tribal like sense of these people are our food um and we shouldn't be trying to live amongst them you can't uh what does that old guy say is you can't it's not natural to tame something wild or whatever something along those lines. You can't tame what's meant to be wild. That's right. That's right. So the the descent amongst them is so immediate. It 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 just is baffling to me. There's a couple of um, editing choices as well, in which characters just kind of are on their way someplace, and then they're. It seems like they're just very abruptly there. Like Terry being in a car. And it seems very fast that all of a sudden she's on the island. Chris, having that scene with Eddie where it's not even entirely clear that Eddie has been killed in this sequence, but all of a sudden he's just exactly where he needs to be. And the 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 werewolves are not afraid of him whatsoever because he's holding a gun. And as we all know, uh, bullets are useless unless they're silver. In which case they are. There's this moment where um, Marsha's brother gets shot and all the other werewolves stand over his body. I suppose they're they're like, watch this. 
this guy with his gun. He watch. Hey, get up and show him that you're okay. Hey, get up, show him you're okay. He is dead. He's <laughs> yeah, bullets won't hurt us. Get him, TC. And TC's like dead, dead as a doornail. And it's kind of funny. It is. I really love this idea because it's one of the few films that really show like the immediate effect of what a silver bullet ought to do, mm-hmm. what you want it to do. They're not going to like boil. They're not going to like have sunlight busting out of the holes in their body or, or all this weird, like really supernatural shit. It literally just kills them. It just works. That's all. That's what it does. And <laughs> I love that he can just drop them. But then we get, you know, this weird duality. And I, I think it sort of happened in Dog Soldiers where we have a character that's like, I want out of this, I want out of this, but I'm also the queen bee bitch, so you better run because I'm going to kill all y'all because I'm the alpha mm-hmm. werewolf. Okay, but I thought you just said you wanted out of this. We just had the doctor being like, there's a new way, and this is the way we ought to be, and we ought to evolve. We need to modernize. And as soon as he's shot with a silver bullet, he's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> that line <laughs> Get is me out of here. hysterical. It um it kind of reminds me of that line in in Waterworld where that old man is in like that big oil rig and like they drop a flare down and he finally gets vaporized by the fire and he has that line oh thank God um it's just uh, it it says so much with so few words I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea that you had just reminded me of that I I, I meant to make a note of but of course I'm a bad student and I didn't this idea Did you draw that a picture of a rooster instead I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the uh, the idea that these the old ways don't work because humans have this ability to adapt and change. This idea, I talk about this in my writing, especially recently. I, I deal with in Teresa. We're constantly dealing with these this very specific race of demons that are very old. And at the time of their creation, they were like the most deadly thing on planet earth. But now humans have technology, which they can't see because when they were created, no such things existed. And so their eyes can't perceive it. And so they need all these extra things to um, enable them to live in the modern world and their, their strength and their speed and their, their ferocity become increasingly meaningless as humans developed guns and instruments of war and explosives and all kinds of things like that. And so this notion of these werewolves who at a time would have seemed undefeatable, like, what are you going to, like, where were you going to get silver? What, what, there was silver bullets. There was no guns when these things were probably originally roaming the world. And so if someone had perhaps a silver blade and, and knew how to use it particularly well, uh, versus a werewolf that could rip you to pieces with its bare hands, they probably didn't really have a whole lot to worry about. And what the doctor has said and seen and realized was it is getting to a point in which the humans, regular humans, have closed the gap on our power. That is why we need to live this way. And these werewolves stuck in the old ways are saying, we can't let that go. Because there was a time in which we were the apex predators, and we probably still are. Meanwhile, one human with one rifle and a seemingly endless supply of silver bullets lays waste to this entire colony of werewolves. No, I love I love that take, and it is absolutely 
why this movie writes itself, why this book wrote itself, because that's how we have evolved. And what are we going to do with that sort of threat? Because like it or not, they had somebody going rogue. They had Eddie Quist out there killing people on the Sunset Strip. Like if you wanted to hide on one hand, if Eddie himself was part of the let's embrace the old ways and live like we always have where humans are our prey and we live in the forest undetected by them. He was going about it the wrong way. <laughs> if he was also on the side of the doctor of let's modernize, we need to live with them, we got to figure this out or else we're doomed. He was also going about it the wrong way. And he was really the reason why these people had come there in the first place. So it just totally, totally writes itself in, in so many ways such a compelling idea of those people lost in the old ways and I think that and without getting political here it seems to me that we are the humans in a way those who have gotten a vaccine or want to trust the science or wear masks to keep people safe in the face of a pandemic and then we have those lone wolves going out there and going about everything kind of the wrong way with let's protest this and spew diesel fumes uh, across a large city to make our point heard that we want to live in the old ways and not trust science. It's just uh, kind of kind of timely. I, I agree. And I think that that's why this film still works. And like you said, writes itself. Um, I had understood, I'd done a little research before. I didn't even realize, gang, that this was based off of a book. That's how bad of a dummy I can be sometimes, but, uh, I had done a little research and I have heard that the, the book is, is a lot more serious and a lot more straightforward. And, and, and so I'm very, I'm very curious to read the original story that this is all based around. There's in the, amongst the chaos, you might ask yourself, where's Bill? Where's Barney Rubble? He'll show up, but not before, Possibly, possibly one of the most idiotic readings of a situation I've ever seen in any film. Not the most idiotic thing I've ever seen. That still goes to uh, Lay to Rest, where she pulls her own phone out of the wall. Uh, well, it's on the <laughs> on the phone with the police. Where Dee Wallace is in the car with Chris, and they're making this fucking escape. By the way, gang, we know that this everyone in town in this colony is a fucking werewolf and they've demonstrated this they've locked them in the barn they've set it ablaze chris has shot you know three or four of them at least perhaps more they're all locked in there they can't get out some do escape though because they're hot on their fucking trail and they're like pulling them off of the fucking cars and shit like that when the sheriff of this the 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 guy that was hunting with everybody, the guy that was hanging out with everybody, the guy that gave him the lay of the land and 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 was there th like throughout the film as part of this colony shows up and Dee Wallace puts her hand on Chris, who's driving the vehicle and says, oh, slow down. It's, uh, you know, whatever his name is. I was like, while he's trying to barricade the road, aiming a gun at you. Karen, he's a werewolf too. Why do you think that, like, why do you think, like, oh, good. 
the per the other person from the colony that's probably definitely a human is just blocking the road, pointing a gun at us. Slow down, quick. Maybe she meant slow down because he's blocking the road, but it reads to me like, oh, slow down. It's our friend, the sheriff. It has to be because she's the vulnerable person who's easily um, impressed by friendly faces. And he was very friendly to her. He is a very, uh, what's the word? He's a very disarming person. Even while he's pointing a gun at you, no pun intended. I, we don't, you know, you could wish and hope that he is the Calvary sent to come save them. And in one way, it could be that they stop, he's not a werewolf, and then he gets descended upon by the werewolves running alongside them in the forest because there's definitely werewolves chasing them. And he would have been torn apart anyway. So it all would have had the exact same outcome. But instead, we get to see a nice little transformation, which is kind of adorable. We, um, we think we're in the clear lids um but uh, D uh karen does get bit though um by a mysterious werewolf that either got into the back seat or was in the back seat the whole time waiting for the perfect moment to strike he gets a, a bullet to the mush for his trouble and we see that that tattoo and yeah it's it's definitely uh it's definitely builds her husband um there's She's got a lot going on. So her reaction to her reaction to Terry's death I thought was kind of curious where she sees her friend in that hospital area completely mauled. Her reaction to Terry's death is very strange to me. She has a little bit of a fevered moment where she's looking where she's like grabbing the phone cord and stuff like that. But uh, and then her reaction to killing her husband, she was kind of mad at him and he by the way, I we forgot to mention this. He fucking slaps her. Where, because she accuses him rightfully of cheating on her, on her and his, and nothing says don't worry baby I didn't cheat on you than backhanding your wife across the face Jesus Christ no he's pretty much he's pretty much horrible he really is and yeah. I mean even in the in the beginning when he is you know worried about her welfare when she's hunting down the killer Eddie quest and all that there is like sort of like an an edge of like, well, this is my belonging that's out there yeah. that I need to bring back home and strip her of her shoes and chain her back up to the oven. And it's just sort of like an undertone. And maybe it's a, you know, intuition, much like Dee Wallace's character has in this film, that people get that this guy isn't all he's cracked up to be. He's not a real husband material, so to speak. No, he's a he's a fucking swine. I can't stand his character. And the more I watch this film, the more I'm just like, Ugh, what a fucking bad man. I don't really know. There's not a smarter way to say that, in my opinion. But we've got uh, we've got an opportunity here, Lids, to tell the people that werewolves exist in dog soldiers. Cooper goes to the press. It's in the newspaper. But Karen has the opportunity to go to the newsroom and deliver a story and she's going to do it surreptitiously you see she is going to go under the pretense of doing something else and then she's going to not read off the teleprompter while chris watches this is fucking baffling and i want your take on this we talked about it a little bit but there's two primary questions 
that I have for you, Liz. Why do you think, was the plan always to shoot her on live television? Or was that, it would have to be because she transforms on purpose. This is not an involuntary action. They've established that very clearly in the movie too. Why does she look like a Pomeranian? Well, I'll tackle the most important question first. Why does she look like a Pomeranian? And I believe that it's this this weird drive they had to make all of the werewolves look like, you know, dogs look like their owners. So have to make these werewolves look sort of like the people that they are. Except Eddie Quest doesn't look anything like Eddie Quest. He looks like the, the big bad wolf. He looks like the the quintessential werewolf from all of our nightmares and fears. And Dee Wallace, maybe it's just that they're, they're wanting her to look like a puppy because she's new, even though Bill transformed into a full-fledged male werewolf. They also have this weird thing where the women look softer and more feminine and delicate as werewolves than the man. And it's it's a very, it's a sexist thing because I when I picture Marsha transformed, I picture more like Eddie Quist. She's going to be this quintessential tough big werewolf right mm -hmm. and i don't know why they went with this short snouted very furry look with little tiny eyes it wasn't big teeth to eat you with big eyes to see you with and big ears to hear you with all those things were small and diminutive and i don't know if maybe maybe d wallace had some say in this and said i want to look cute I don't want to scare my future kids. It, it, I don't know. It just looks bad. It just looks it's bad. Sexist. I think it's sexist. It does look bad. It looks cute, her wiggly little sniff nose. But you want to know why it looks so bad to me? It's not that the practical effects look bad. It's that it doesn't read werewolf to me. It's just, it looks like a little dog. Like and It looks like Andrea Subasati's dog, Dante. That's what it looks like. Yes. Like, yes, precious, she gets the hose. Like, the, the fucking, this weird, this weird fucking, and it's such a tight shot. There's no, there's no context to it. It's so weird. But the shooting thing, what the fuck? Now, yeah, I really think that was 100% premeditated. And it all is her driving forces. We need to make people believe what happened to us. We can't... You tell people I'll be thrown in a loony bin. We need to show them and make them believe. And I get it. And that's also coming from a television news journalist's perspective of you can't you can't say it if you can't show it. You got to show it. Show, don't tell. I'm going to show them. People can make their own conclusions. Like the kids watching the nightly news saying, Mommy, the news lady's turning into a werewolf. And people in the bar that... One of them is like, wow, that's special effects. The other one's like, nope, she turned into a werewolf and they shot her. That's what happened. And I think that last man's perspective is what she was going for. We need to make people believe that this fire up on the hill of this uh, hippie commune colony run by Dr. Wagner wasn't a bunch of innocent people getting unsuspectedly burnt down because of something unfortunate. It was a slaughter of predatory werewolf pack that was living up in the woods. And the only way to make them believe that is to show 
what it had done to her. I had this thought when I was watching the film, and this film came out in 1981, and I don't know if this is in the book. Maybe you can confirm or not. But I was curious, only a couple of years before this, there was a famous incident in which a news reporter killed herself on live television. And I was wondering if it was this way to include something crazy and sensational that typified the where news was going in those days. This shocking story uh, where a woman killed herself, like shot herself in the head, and it cuts away. They, they faded the news station when this happened in real life. I cannot remember the woman's name, and I'm sorry for that. Um, but uh, I meant to look it up, and I forgot. But it did happen, and I, and I was like, I wonder if that was just, again, like, you're, you're a writer, you're creating things, you're making a movie, you have this idea of ending it in such a way, now it might be too grisly for her to kill herself, but maybe if someone else killed her on live television, and, it, and you have this idea of people debating what they, what they even saw was real because they're so desensitized to the shocking things on the news, I don't know. I don't really remember the book very clearly. I need to rebuy it myself. So maybe I'll pick it up and we'll I'll lend it to you and we'll both have a reading of it. But um, I know there's quite a few differences. They're very, very different stories. The gist is still there. And it is like a battle of the old way werewolf and the modern and a clash between them. But she's not like even a TV reporter. So there's quite a lot of differences as far as Karen and then again there would be a lot of differences in her motivations for that sort of ending as the film ends so yeah and I don't remember the name of that and of course Bud Dwyer sticks in my head but that was well after yeah. this film had yeah. come out but uh, I remember the female newscaster quite clearly it has to be a commentary on that it just seems so similar uh, and, and like I said maybe they thought uh, Karen killing herself would, was a bit too grisly even for this movie uh, but because it's just it's so I guess because there was no conversation but Chris's reaction seemed almost but then again he had the rifle with him at the news station why would you bring that unless you were planning to fucking use it? With the silver bullets in it. How he got it in there is crazy to me. No, no, you're totally right. I just I just have always been very curious about that. And I, I bet you if I were to watch this film with the commentary, I bet someone would tell me, but I never have done that. But, uh, or, or perhaps Google would help me. But just uh, the, the ending... I think they had a nugget of a good idea. I just don't entirely like how it was executed. Um, just just because of like the things we talked about. The werewolf design does nothing for me. I think it just looks bad. And you're you're right. Marsha transforms, and she also looks more feminine. But the weird thing about that. Was I? I kind of also viewed Mar every time we saw Marsha transforming, and it was clearly the actress in makeup. I always thought that we were looking at a, a sort of in-between state 
where she was not fully wolfed out yet. And then in the 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 pack of wolves that were attacking the car, I, I just get this that one of those is Marsha. Especially the, there's one where they keep doing a tight shot on it, like shoulders up and head, and it it seems a little like darker. Like you know, uh, Marsha is a, a, a raven tressed beauty, so this one wolf seems to be uh, have black fur as opposed to gray fur, and I always. Maybe I'm fucking dead wrong and it has nothing to do with that. But I always thought that that was supposed to be Marsha. Well, sure not TC. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. yeah. Um, the um, idea that the transformation looks so painful with Eddie. And that's part of what I like about a lot of my favorite werewolf transformations. is they, Even that uh, Hemlock Grove show... A transformation is not a fun thing to undergo. And that's the other complaint I have, I suppose, with the cute, fuzzy-wuzzy teddy bear Pomeranian wiggle-nose transformation of D. Wallace at the end on the newscast is that it doesn't look as painful. It's very It, it hurts my heart to see that tear fall out of her eyes. She looks scared and it, it's wonderfully acted. Like, it's a beautiful scene. Her The middle shots of her transformation with the mm-hmm. teeth and the eyes and before the cute Pomeranian final form but with Eddie's and like everyone else it looks painful like the skin stretching and all that and we don't really get that with D. Wallace's transformation uh, incidentally the news anchor that had been the first person to commit suicide on live TV was Christine Chubbuck and that was in Florida in 1974. Okay, so um, I I don't know when the book was written. I, the movie was in eighty one, but it was just a few. It was it wasn't even ten years, and that would have been fairly cemented, particularly if you were, you know, the type of person that paid attention to that sort of thing. Uh, but thank you for yeah. Getting it would that have been name. a few years before because that um, the final newscast of Christine Chubbuck was in. 1974 the book was written in 77 and i really do love when a book and a movie come out fairly close to one another Mm -hmm. so you got that quick fame from the book itself and the film comes out right after usually only reserved for the likes of stephen king usually it takes like 10 goddamn years for a movie to come out from a book you would be surprised at how many great horror movies were books and no one really talks about it and it's like just a little footnote of based on a novel by such and such yeah, um, the the last shot of this is people's reactions. Now, people's reactions are mixed. One of the things about Dee Wallace killing herself, I mean, listen, she had been through a lot. Um, she was almost killed several times. She learned werewolves were real. Her husband cheated on her with a werewolf that she didn't like anyways. Just, even if she wasn't a werewolf, I bet her and Marsha couldn't have been friends. Marsha's got black hair. Karen's got blonde hair. Fucking, there's no way it would work. Um, so, y- y- and and then her husband, the 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 lion cheating bastard that he is, gets fucking killed. I'm pretty sure she was the one that killed him, or maybe it was Chris. But so maybe she just was out of steam, and I don't want to be a werewolf. But I can tell you this much: if you want to leave a lot of the naysayers conspiracy theorists at the front door and turn her a lot of heads maybe you transform more than once and still be alive so you can do it again and again and again 
and again and again and again. So you can be like, I'm a werewolf, poof, see I'm a werewolf, they're real. And then you go to a different news station and it's like, this is fake. I'm like, no, here's a controlled environment, poof, I'm a werewolf, werewolves are real. Like you could just keep doing that. You don't need to, you don't need to like, I transform once and then I die because then it leaves it up open for debate. But it's probably good that it is open for debate. Someone probably would have shot her because I think that that's what Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to do. Not poof, I'm a werewolf, but like, hey, study me. I'm a serial killer. Look at my brain. I don't know why I do this. I've got ideas, but I don't know why because I'm not a psychologist. What I need a psychologist to tell me why. And sure, he did other stuff that sort of belied this like, you know, sort of duty to humanity that he was trying to express uh, in public. But for the most part, he did want to know why he was the way he was. Karen would have been a perfect example of like, hey, study me, poke me, prod me. Why do werewolves exist? Is there a cure for werewolfism? Like, mm-hmm. is there? Because, or lycanthropy, I suppose, is the, the clinical term. But <laughs> like, she could have gone that route. But no, she wanted to go out with a bang, I suppose. Now, do you think Chris would have been uh, charged with murder or cruelty to animals? <laughs> Oh my God. Um, uh, Marsha, by the way, did not burn in a barn fire. She did not get shot while attacking anything. She is in the city. Old Marsha in the city now. Still looking like she's out of an 80s fantasy movie, but sitting at a bar and she orders her hamburger. Rare. And then we just watch her hamburger cook. It made me hungry because I'm pretty hungry. Quite the ending scene. I think I'm going to go and get a burger too. Not rare, because that's dangerous, but mm-hmm. um, unless you grind your meat yourself, which I've started doing the past uh, couple years, and I it's highly recommend it. My family grinds their own meat, so yeah. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. I think that um, I, I think that watching this film again and doing this episode and talking about the 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 the, the philosophical conversations around lycanthropy and around um, the old world versus the new world just makes me love this film all the much more uh, it's great if you guys haven't seen The Howling we just spoil the fuck out of it but um, I, I really I, I really highly recommend this this film and you know and you don't need to choose one or the other because we can like both things you can like American Werewolf in London you can like The Howling you can even like Wolfen you like that weird Jack Nicholson werewolf movie that not a lot of people talk about anymore. Fucking Wolf or whatever it was called. Remember that one? Yeah, I was actually looking that up to see if it came out in 1981 too, like all the other great werewolf movies. But no, uh, uh, yeah, it 90- was actually not that bad of a film. What do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have a little bit of a change of pace. Whispering Corridors. And this will set off a, a, a little set of some... Uh, Japanese horror as well and quiet horror a very different tone from what we have covered Mm -hmm. or are those Korean films Wes? Whispering Corridors is definitely Korean Uh, I don't know if A Tale of Two Sisters is Korean or not Hmm. seems like something that we'll have to find out (laughs) we'll definitely have to find out I've been threatening Whispering Corridors for a very long time but I thought it might be too sleepy uh, because it is kind of a sleepy film, but it's incredibly influential to the Asian ghost story 
films that became really popular in the 1990s and early 2000s. And it's a film, it's a franchise, but this film in particular is given a lot of credit for paving the way to, in, in the way that movies need to get paved the way in financially. It needs to be proven that you can make money making movies like this. Um, and, and so Whispering Corridor's success brought us things like The Ring and everything like that. And so I've, I've, I've always really wanted to talk about it. Tale of Two Sisters also is, um, is a beautiful movie. It's, uh, I, it I remember really the first, I remember the first time seeing the trailer for that movie on a different, I, I had, it was in front of, I, I don't know what the fuck I was watching, but it was a trailer in front of a DVD that I had bought. And it, it, it made me want to watch that instead of the movie that I was actually watching. That makes a lot of sense. It is a gorgeous movie. And that was a movie that had me more than anything, seek out more Asian horror because that was such a beautiful movie. And it might've been just slow and a little dark, but it was like this perfect fairy tale and this perfect sort of switcheroo kind of story. Just such a basic ghost story that I, I loved it so much. And I still do. I have not seen Whispering Corridor. So that is a West pick that is a mystery to me. So I'm very excited to see that too. That's what's coming up next. I'm Wes Snipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.